Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is episode 65 of the Intercooler podcast, um, and we're talking about forgotten performance cars, right? The ones that get overlooked, that aren't revered the way others are um, and we're wondering why that happens now this this idea was suggested to us by an intercooler reader but sadly I'm afraid I couldn't find your message again so you'll know who you are thank you for suggesting this idea it's a good one um, and if anybody else has any ideas up their sleeves let us know and if we like them we'll do them um, Andrew, and we have we... We, we, we have done quite yeah, a few reader a few. ideas haven't we um, yeah. and they always get a good response so um you know, more than happy to come up with our own, but at the same time, we always regard this thing as being an entirely interactive process. So, you know, if if, if you've got something you'd really like us to rattle on about, um, mm. you know, and it's a decent idea, very happy to do it. Yeah, quite right. Um, okay, but f- before we get stuck in, quick TI app update. Um, I just want to talk about the variety of the the stuff that we've post- posted on the app um, over the past few days. Chippergeddon by Andrew English was... <laughs> A bit of a monster piece by our standards, wasn't it? 2,000 words or something. All about the, the computer chip shortage that's really having a, an enormous, uh, well, a very harmful, very damaging effect on the car industry now. And uh, Andrew looks at why that's come about um, and also why it's affecting some car makers more than others. Um, and it's, oh, do you know what? If I tried to write that piece, it would take me a month to do all the research, get my head around it all, uh, and then... Yeah. You know, and and communicate it in the way that he does, but he it's it's it's, it's as though it's second nature to Andrew. Yeah, and, and the brilliant thing about it, because I mean, if you haven't seen it, it'll sound to you like a really dry industry story. But if you're a person of a certain age, if I tell you that one of the first things he invokes is the Clangers, who were a bunch of basically sock puppets in a cartoon series that was existed in the early 1970s, and how. You can look at a particular episode of The Claggers and in it see all the problems that affect the modern car industry today. Um, you, you will understand that, that Andrew's unique ability to um, 
to make these uh, these issues um, understandable and interesting and entertaining uh, and everything else. So it is anything but just another dry industry story. Yeah, and it's really important. Does. <clears throat> it is important, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's really rattled a lot of car makers. So they're really worrying about it, and that's why we report on it. Um, okay, so some good stuff as well from our other writers. Karen Chandock on meeting his motorsport heroes. Had a great response to that piece. Um, and I think people like reading this new series of ours, Our Cars, um, just a, maybe a, a little insight into who we are and the stuff that we drive, well, maybe not every day, but perhaps at weekends. Hen- uh, Henry Catchpole, for instance, has written about his Mark II Escort rally car. Not um, that he's driven it much recently. Not that he's driven, driven it much recently, but he explains why, despite that fact, that he can't bring himself to sell the thing. Um, and today, as we're recording this, we've started a new series from Mel Nichols, uh, which is called I Was There. And it's a it really, it's a series that perhaps only Mel could write. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, Mel is... I mean, it occurs to me, it, 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 because I'm a certain age, I can't believe that there's anybody listening to this who haven't, hasn't heard of Mel Nichols. But of course, you know, lots of people listening to this will be, you know, Dan's age or whatever. And, you know, and, and they were, well, frankly, you know, not born when Mel was doing his thing. Mel, if you don't know, was the editor of Car Magazine in the 70s and the early 1980s. And he, he is genuinely, I mean, he wouldn't say this, but he is genuinely the father of the modern supercar drive story. Um, and he started doing these sorts of stories in that time. Um, and for people like me, it really was the reason that cars became such a factor in life because, you know, he, you know, we talk about, oh, you know, put the reader behind the wheel. But I mean, yeah, he came as close to actually achieving that as, as anybody I've ever read. Um, and he still does. Uh, and, you know, if you go and read his latest piece, which is just about driving a Porsche 911 across Wales, uh, which is something that, you know, frankly, anybody who does what we do for a living has probably gone and done. But the way he does it, the way he involves you in the action, and yet at the same time, you know, packs in so much information about the car. Um, it's a rare and special talent um and his legacy you know even people who don't know him you know writers you know, young writers today they're probably aren't even aware how influenced they are and have been by the way he just changed you know dry reportage into these immensely characterful color-driven pieces um and we just, we just feel really lucky that you know this man who you know who is you know long since retired from the sort of you know the cutting edge of motoring journalism um you know, still has these memories and, and his writing ability remains undimmed to this day. So um, we're going to do a short series of these pieces um, and we'll go take a look. Go take a look on the app, have a read. Um, you know, it's free to download. First month is free on us. It's easy to cancel. And just go and have a look at the variety and the sort of stuff there and go and particularly look at Mel's story. And you will see when you read it, you can just see where the modern drive story comes from. And just remember, he was doing it before any of us. Mm. It's a... Uh... It's a writing style that actually we don't read very much um, these days. Uh, and I think it's a pity because it's very, very evocative, very descriptive. It, as you say, it puts you in the car. I think what Mel does cleverly is to write in a very creative, quite colourful way without it becoming in any way silly. Um, and I th- what I want to do is give that type of writing a platform because it's, it, it's so evocative. It's so... Um, it's so good to read, uh, and it would be a shame if we all stopped writing that way. Um, so just go and have a look. And those pieces by Mel, they're not about... You'll see one strong lead image, 
Okay, there'll be one photo because it, these pieces are actually about the writing. We They're want to put all the emphasis the on the writing. So that's why we do that. Um, but anyway, just get, there's a good variety of stuff up on there over the last few days. Go and download it. Start your free trial. Uh, we think you'll stay with us. Um, yeah, go and just all you need to do is search the intercooler on whichever app store you use. You'll find it there. Okay, good. Let's crack on with this week's episode, Forgotten Performance Cars. Um, now, for, for no particular reason, I've got this car at the top of my list. Um, it is one that we've addressed relatively recently on the podcast, so we won't linger on it. But it's the 996, the Porsche 911, right? The first water-cooled one. Oh, okay. Um, it's among 911s, it is the forgotten one. Um, which is slightly odd because in its day, the media thought very, very highly of it. It won all sorts of magazine group tests and car of the year competitions and so on. Um, but now it does appear to be overshadowed by the earlier stuff, um, the 997, the more recent stuff. It's, it is the, the most affordable 911 that there is. Why do you think it sort of reached that, that unedifying status? Is it? I, it, I, I think it's a lot of things. I think the media at the time, and I can say this because I, 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 I was part of it, although actually I, I think I was in a minority. I wasn't knocked out by it. Um, the story I wrote for Motorsport, which I was editing at the time, the, the headline was 9 as in N-E-I-N, 11, as in this is not a 911. Um, but I think most people, I think because it was an all-new 911, and I think there was like, like a kind of presumption that, you know, if Porsche could have done that well with a 911 that was, what was the 993 at the time, you know, 34, 35 years old, then, you know, how good would a brand new? So I think the expectation was that it would be brilliant. You know, it was lighter than the 993, which I don't think anybody expected. Um, you know, it had more power than anything other than a 993 RS. So, um, you know, the standard car had 300 horsepower. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think that at the time, people thought, wow, this is something, this is progress. Um, and then people began to realize that they just weren't as well built. And they're not. They just really aren't. Um, and, and and then obviously, you know, the problems that we all know about with the engines and that sort of thing started to become apparent. And yeah, I mean, uh, and, and their reputation has, has become a bit tarnished. The interesting thing is the most enjoyable sort of standard 996 experience I've had was very recently. Um, I dropped um, a car off at TI-22 in Chepstow to have some Valentine done. And um James Walker, who runs it, lent me his 996 just to go home in. And I hadn't driven a 996 for 20 years. And, and I just thought, this is fantastic. It was, it, it, it feels so light and it feels properly quick. And it's actually, it's a really, really good car to drive. Um, but, you know, it's not a classic 911. Um, it is a car which there have been some problems with. Um, and, you know, and the 997 is a better looking car um and it looks more like a 911 and uh, yeah and i guess it just got caught between you know the 993 was the ultimate of the original uh sort of classic 911s and the 997 was you know what turned out to be the refinement of a very good idea but much much better than the car it replaced so it kind of fell down the crack on the sofa didn't it yeah, it did. So we're talking about forgotten performance cars, and we've managed to kick off by talking about a 911. <laughs> so I think maybe we should uh, dive into your list a little bit and find uh, perhaps a more esoteric choice. Okay, got? I'm going to open the bidding with the Honda Integra Type R. Interesting. 
Forgotten. Take Type R. Well, okay. I know that there. Well, I mean, quite compared to a nine eleven, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I know that there is a very small band of diehard, um, you know, hot hatch fans, um, the Teg Type R mob, who who absolutely get this car and love it and understand it. But I don't think out there in the big wide world amongst you know sort of more general car enthusiasts i you know i think there'll be plenty of people who don't even know what a honda integra type r is let alone that it was in my view the best handling front wheel drive car that has ever been produced um you know not only that but also one with that incredible screaming vtec engine in it um because you know they weren't on sale over here for very long not very many came in um i think that i think they are too you know a, a broad community of motoring enthusiasts i think that they are a forgotten car is that potentially because it's quite a focused thing isn't it like it, particularly if you if you do a long journey in one of those things it's got short gearing only five speed isn't it the engine is buzzing away it's a noisy yeah. car yeah is it is there is there something in that is it actually a bit too hardcore for some people well no because i mean i think there are all sorts of cars aren't there which are quite hardcore and, and we love them because of that um that's you know, because it, because they're not jacks of all trade because they are very focused that's what gives them that sort of cult status and and pro- pro- i don't know i think i think it was just because it was a little honda hatchback it was seen to be a sort of spin-off of a civic um as i say there weren't very many and i don't know some things just don't gain the wider recognition um that they should and, and in my view that's um that, 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 that that's one of them okay let me give you another one of mine then Go on. uh the lotus europa s hang on which one so you're talking about the mod, the, the new one or the old one 2006 to 2010 oh, okay so the new one yes and it became the se in 2008 uh so the basic premise of this car it was an elise underneath um but it's designed it to be- if it deserves to be forgotten <laughs> hold that thought the the europa s was is an elise underneath designed to be more usable bigger boot more sound deadening easier access to the cabin yeah um, a higher Worse, roof line in other regards <laughs> the europe it, it's creature comforts like air conditioning a sound system leather interior yeah. carpeting yeah um, still less than a ton just 995 yeah. kilograms an elise designed to be less like an elise T- two an elise liter- with all the things that make <laughs> an elise really good removed. stop it Two litre turbo engine, 200 horsepower. And this line, the Europa S was not a sales success, <laughs> which kind of underpins the point you're making. Um, and so they, they updated it halfway through its life with the, the SE with a bit more power. Joe, I've already uh, forgotten all this. Yeah, well, that's why I'm running through it. According to Wikipedia, at least, so please don't shoot the messenger, 456 were built, plus 48 Europa SEs, um, which is why when you do see one on, your, on the road, you go... Oh my God! It's a it's a, a Lotus Europa. Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen one on the road. Well, yeah, there you go. Um, so I just want to read. Uh, this is all paraphrased, but um, the correspondent for the Sunday Times at the time, which probably, probably, name, probably me, Andrew Frankel. <laughs> is it me? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so th- they don't quote you here, but it, it says. Th- I'll, I'll just read you the passage. The Sunday Times noted that while introducing a lower revving engine creates a more comfortable level of sound. The performance is noticeably different from the higher revving Toyota engines. And with a heavier body shell, the performance isn't in line with the Elise or Exige. I think, actually, that's polite, if, if that's come from the, the piece you've written. What did you actually say about it at the time? 
I can't remember. I can't remember, barely remember the card. But I'll tell you, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, whatever it was, I didn't write that because not even I can write that badly. Um, <laughs> okay, good point. I, 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 I can't. I, I can't remember what I wrote about it. I can remember it. I, I mean, okay, what what do I remember? I just remember thinking, what's the point? What is, I mean, you know, I, I, well, I say what's the point. I mean, I do understand what they were trying to do. They were trying to broaden the appeal of the car, and and, and I do get that because you know, and Elise. You know, it is a certain sort of car, um, and yeah, I, I, I understand it, but it, but it just didn't work. It just didn't work. You know, it's it's like all cars that become sort of dilute versions of their former selves. They 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 they, they, they never work. Um, interestingly, and I don't think this falls into the category of being, although it was all those things. I think it's still a really good car. Another one on my list, um, directly um, related to this, is the VX two twenty. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a good shout. Now, actually, if the Europa had done what the VX220 had done, and the VX220 was a physically bigger car than the Lees, um, and it was more comfortable. I'm a huge VX220 fan. I think that was a really underrated car. Um, and, you know, to me, actually, you know, because I'm quite a big bloke and uh, I was just much more comfortable in them, um, I'd probably, on any given day, probably rather to a stood around the place in, in the Vauxhall than the Lotus. Um so that and yeah and let's not forget they also made you know some pretty bloody quick ones as well um, yeah yeah and and because i guess they're voxels and so they haven't got the badge and they haven't got the cachet um they're just not revered today in in quite the same way but um you know let's put it this way um if there was a vx220 and a europa parked outside and there were the keys to both you know i would run towards one and and, and, and run straight past the other to get to it yeah, okay, you choose the Vauxhall. So I think <clears throat> perhaps what didn't help the Europa was that these things are subjective, but it didn't look great, did it? And I'm sorry if you have one and you love your car, but it's just my point of view. I don't, I, I don't particularly like the way they look. I think some quite clumsy styling, particularly around the lights, front and rear. Um, <clears throat> there's one for sale on piston heads, which indicates how rare is they it? are. 27,450 quid, which is, what, about 25 grand more than you pay for it? <laughs> something of that yeah. order okay fine let me give you yeah. another one of mine <clears throat> and this one takes a bit of qualifying the honda s2000 and before you jump in this is a car that has <laughs> that has a huge following there are lots of people who adore their s2000s okay there's a real <clears throat> there's real enthusiasm for them among some quarters okay the reason i i, I put it on my list is that it seems to have been forgotten between you and I. One or two people have Ooh. pointed out that we just don't mention it when no. we're talking about Hondas or when we're talking about affordable sports cars or when we're talking about Japanese cars. We apparently very, very rarely mention it. Um, and I just thought it'd be worth addressing that now. Why is that? Uh, for me, for my part, I've only driven one once, uh, maybe twice. Um, I thought the drivetrain was unbelievable. Yeah. I thought the seating position was unbelievably bad. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember a great deal about the way it steered, the way it handled, but hopefully you can enlighten us. Yeah. Um, they never quite did it for me. I mean, that engine was obviously amazing. You know, ripped 9,000 RPM. Extraordinary. But, you know, it was also, it felt like a race engine um, and in a road car because it had so little low down talk 
I mean, it was kind of a novelty that wore off quite quickly because you had to work it so hard. You had to think so much about always being in the right gear to get it to do its thing. Um, that, you know, on the road, which is, you know, a compromised environment where you can't always, you know, be in the right gear and at the right revs, um, it became in that in those circumstances, which frankly were the only circumstances in which um, we drove them, it became a bit of a pain. Um, the steering was quite dead on them. They've got this reputation, haven't they, for being a bit spiky, which I have to say I never really experienced. Um, you know, I th- you know, the, 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 you could skid them about um, and the back moved quite quickly, but I don't remember um, thinking, oh, bloody hell, this is, this is tricky. Um, but, you know, you've got to see these things in the context of what else was around at the time. Um, and it's, you know... A Honda S2000 is absolutely fine until somebody says Boxster. Mm. Um, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem. And then suddenly, you know, and, and what we what we tend to do as motoring journalists is when we're thinking back to a particular era, we think about, because it's natural, you know, the best cars, um, the best that era could produce as a way of referring what we're doing now to maybe what was happening back then. So, you know, if you're thinking about cars from that era, you know, if you're talking about, you know, two-seater sports cars from that era well you're going to think about a boxster and therefore talk about a boxster in a way you're probably not an s2000 you know the s2000 was never the best car in its class or anything close to it um it was it was really interesting you know i'm glad they they built it because i just love it when um honda you know show what they can do and their engineering expertise uh, and really special stuff for it does result um you know we already talked about the integra and you know and the engine in that honda was amazing um it just wasn't in that great a car mm, okay fair enough um give us another one of yours then oh i've got a list bmw z1 <laughs> interesting never driven one they look cool They've Great got those funny car. doors that drop into Great the sills. Great car, yeah. Great car, lovely car. I mean, beautiful handling car. I really love the look. I love the doors. The only problem with it was it didn't quite have enough steam. Um, but Alpina did one with a 2.7 in it, with quite a tweaked up 2.7. And it was just brilliant. It was absolute, it was super, superb car. Um, and And if I'm honest with you, but I'm going to have to think about this. But yes, no, it is. I mean, of all the Z cars I've driven, it's the one I've enjoyed the most. It was the first, and you felt you felt really special in it because it looked so dramatic, and those doors were really cool. Um, and it's completely forgotten now, isn't it? I mean, nobody talks about Z ones. Um, but you know, God knows if there's even an Alpine Z1 in the country. But I reckon if you drove if you drove one, you'd be really surprised by how good it was. On the subject of BMW Z cars, um, yeah. What about the Z8? I've yeah, never driven one again. Um, it's got the M5, D39 M5 engine, hasn't it? Manual box, <clears throat> that kind of retro Americana styling. Um, yeah. I, I always thought they looked great. Uh, what were they, they? Were they good to drive? They got they got a real kicking when they came out, um, certainly from us lot, um, because I think we, I think we misunderstood what kind of car it was. I think we thought it was going to be a real proper sports car. We thought it was going to be something that's going to you know duff up nine elevens and Ferraris and that sort. Of, and it just wasn't that at all. It was a cruiser, touring car, um, you know, big lazy V eight, you know, arm on the 
on the on on the top of the door um sit back um and just waft lovely noise lots of performance bit of a bit soft bit of a pudding and again i drove one i say recently probably three or four years ago um bmw in the uk have one and i just i was just having lunch with someone uh, from and they turned up in it um and so i was able to just sort of go around the block in it and you know and, and these things because when you get in the car all those years later and you're no longer being the sort of you know gimlet eyed road tester you're just appreciating it for what it is um and you're not thinking about oh what's this car's competitor set what does it cost what's its performance like what are you're just getting in a car and driving it um it was lovely it was great to waft around in um it felt it felt properly far i mean surprisingly rapid um i felt good about being in it and that was the car's job wasn't it? it its job was to make its occupants feel good about being it and i did so you know in a way i never understood when it was new um it did do that job okay another one of mine um <clears throat> and i i say I, this is on my list because the master mx5 is a stone cold future classic if it's not classic already it's it's adored it's revered it's it's spoken about a lot not least by us um but what about the MGF and the MGTF? I was trying to work out where you were going then. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say, you know, the last MR2 or Fiat Barchetta or something. Okay, MGF. Um, so I shouldn't sneer. Um, the TF was... The, 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 the TF was... Uh, too little too late uh, and the end I'll I t- I t- I tell you the reason what saddens me about the MGF is you could see how good it could have been um, it was a good looking car um, and you know a mid-engine 2C it really could have been something but it just it just never quite hung together it just never it never gave the MX-5 nearly enough to worry about um it was one of those sort of, you know, nearly but not quite. In fact, not even that nearly. Um, it was a kind of what-if car. If only it had been more interesting to drive. If only it had handled better than it did. Um, if only the driving position hadn't been so rubbish. Um, you know, if only, if only, if only. And the, and the problem was, if the, okay, if the MX-5 hadn't existed, um, I think we'd be going, wow, that's quite cool. Because it looks amazing. And nobody expected, you know, them to do that. And it would have got a much better um, reception than um, than it did. But, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, not really. <laughs> okay, all right. That's fair enough. Um, right, before you give me another one of yours, <clears throat> there's one that I want to squeeze in. And I've done a bit of research on this one. Oh, God. Um, and so before I get stuck in, yesterday evening I recorded a podcast with two of our intercooler writers with Colin Goodwin and Joe Fidalgo and the the point of it was talking about cars of the 90s and one of the things that Joe mentioned I think she's a similar age to me is that a lot of her hero cars from that era she's too young to have driven back in the day but she drove them on Gran Turismo okay on the the PlayStation game and that that was enough for these cars to assume a, a kind of kind of status among our generation um, and one of the poster cars of that game series back in the 90s was the Mitsubishi 3000 GT, <laughs> the GTO in Japan. Okay, <laughs> what, what was its American name? Uh, oh, it was, I have been reading up about this. I didn't make a note of it. Can you remember? It was a Dodge Stealth. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dodge, Dodge stealth. stealth. That's <laughs> so cool. Okay. Never driven one. Um, the, the, what I know about these cars is that they were laden with tech. And I like it when Japan, when the Japanese car industry does that, when it takes a load of technology and puts it in a coupe. Because, you know, we've had all those Evos and Impressas that had active diffs and all sorts of stuff. Um, but it's quite rare that they do it to a coupe. The, the, the GTRs and the Skylines um, qualify, of course. But the, the three, it's just a compelling proposition to me, even though I understand it's supposed to be terrible. So this was between 1990 and 2000. So it's a real 90s car. Twin turbo V6. Um, it had active aero with adjust, automatically adjusting front and rear spoilers. Four-wheel steering. It was all-wheel drive. And it had adaptive suspension. Yeah. Um, I mean, that stuff that other car companies didn't adopt for a couple of decades. Um, but I understand that, particularly from reading Evo magazine, who had a, a, a vendetta against that car. And I, I remember reading, I think, um, I think the magazine was having a to and fro with a reader who they'd managed to, to offend, a reader who owned a 3000 GT. Um, and to prod... Uh, slash placate this reader peter tomlin wrote well we can agree it's certainly a lot of awful car for the money uh, and you, and you shouldn't explain jokes but if you if you didn't read it carefully enough it looks like he's saying it's an awful lot of car for the money um it was just a brilliant piece of peter tomlin writing but why is it then that evo and perhaps other magazines had it in for this thing because they'd driven it <laughs> But it's got 282 horsepower, twin turbo V6. So what? 200 pounds for the torque. It probably weighed 1,800 <laughs> kilos as well. I mean... Yeah, 1740, I, mean, I think. If, 1740, okay. So, okay, there are two problems. One is because they drove it. The second thing is having, you know, before they drove it, they'd driven a Porsche 968. Okay, that, that was its closest rival. You know, and the Porsche was... The Porsche had nothing. Four-cylinder engine. Yeah, no turbos. Uh, rear wheel drive no four wheels Porsche had nothing yeah and if ever you wanted proof that it ain't what you got it's what you do with it that counts (laughs) go and get a 968 and a 3000 GT and just head off down the road and you will see you will see the technology meant nothing it you know the car was lumbering cumbersome um big it didn't steer particularly nicely. I mean, it had it had some power. It had some get up and go. Um, I don't seem to recall the interior was particularly nice. It was an awful lot of technology going nowhere, um, and it, it it just showed that if you had that option or you had the option just to do it properly with what you already had then, you know, the result was, you know, a pure thoroughbred driving experience, not some sort of, I don't know, synthesised arcade game on wheels. <laughs> oh, come on, you're clearly biased. It was, it was Japan's 959. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe not. That's right, there, yes, there, yes, there are yes. two for sale on Autotrader, 10 grand. They're, they're UK Can cars, you apparently. imagine what the bills would be like? <laughs> well, that's the problem, isn't it? Um, apparently you can get imported GTOs from Japan for much, much less than that. Should you? Never, never drove, never drove GTO. Might be, might be terrific. No idea. <laughs> Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Okay, let's have another one of yours. You may not even know what I'm talking about with this one. Try me. Okay, but 
at the time it was considered to be the next best thing to you know one of the bet to an e34 5 series mm-hmm. a Vauxhall carlton 24 valve okay not a lotus carlton not a lotus carlton nicer than a lotus carlton wow okay big claim okay go on Nice. Okay, that is quite a big claim. I might have to. I might have to just roll back on that one a little bit. But actually, okay. So this was a car. Um, it was a Vauxhall car, and it was big four door saloon. Um, and they they'd done a three liter, um, which was quite quick. But then they put a twenty four valve head on it, uh, which gave it two hundred and something horsepower. And its closest rival was a five three five i BMW, an E thirty four five three five i BMW, which to us was basically, you know, where. That was absolutely the standard for... You know, that was the greatest saloon car in the world. And I can remember doing a twin test between these two cars. And if I tell you that although I can remember doing the test very vividly, and we did it up in Yorkshire and the lakes, and it was very wet, but I can't remember which car won, that'll tell you how close it was. It was... I'll tell you what it was. I mean, the engine was really, really good. It was a great engine. But the balance of the car, the chassis on this thing, it was just a complete sideways merchant. It just loved doing it, but in the most beautifully controllable way. And there was the incongruity that you were skidding about having a hoot in a Vauxhall Carlton, in, a, you know, in an enormous executive express. Um, and it also, 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 it was a really good looking car too. Go look it up. It's a really cool looking thing as well. Very understated, not like, like the overblown, you know, um, Vauxhall, uh, Lotus Carlton. Um, it was understated, um, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was just a really, really good super saloon that is today completely forgotten, even apparently among people who earn their livings as motoring journalists. So, yeah. That's that, a great that, nomination. Yeah. So there you go. I wonder if you can find one for sale today. Are they still out there? Maybe I not. bet there is. I bet there okay. is. <laughs> okay. Um, what about the, the Jaguar XK? V8 engine. They look pretty good. Sub 10 grand, you into them? Yeah, no, I'm very into that. I'm very into those cars, yeah. I mean, otherwise known as the facelifted XJS. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, an, an absolutely cracking... Uh, sorry, the reason I paused was I just... In fact, funny if I saw a supercharged one with those, with those bonnet vents in the supermarket car park a couple of days ago, and I was looking at it, I'm thinking, actually, although it looks quite old now, the design still stacks up. It's still a really good-looking car um and you know what it was a real i can remember auto car steve cropley had a long termer a really really early car so that was a four liter 296 horsepower i think yeah close to 300 um and okay so i can remember going down to uh the editor was michael harvey at the time and he got married in the south of france and i can remember going to his wedding and leaving work at whatever it was, five, six o'clock on a Friday evening, getting into Cropley's XK8, going to Dover, getting on a ferry, getting off the ferry, and being in the south of France, having cruised all night at a speed I probably shouldn't own up to on a podcast. Um, and literally, I mean, I basically, as I, I went as fast as I felt that car could, at a speed I felt that car could sustain for hours at a time. And I put the cruise control on at that speed. And it was just fantastic. I was in the south of France for a very early breakfast, um, having just had 
a night where this car just effortlessly swept me the length of that country. Um, and I just thought it was it was terrific. The new engine was fantastic. The look of the car was great. Um, you know, given the, and, and, and the history of it is really, really interesting because if you remember when the XJS died, they wanted to replace it with the F type, which is an all new car and it got bigger and fatter and heavier and, um, and Jaguar canned it. And in the meantime, TWR had gone to them with a reskinned XJS and said, no, no, you don't need to do that new car. All you need to do is just reskin what you've already got and here you go. And Jaguar said, no, we don't want that. And so Tom Walkinshaw went, well, we better go and ring up Aston Martin. And that's how the DB7 arrived. That car got turned into the DB7. And then they saw how successful the DB7 had become. And they thought, oh, well, maybe there's something in it after all. And so they did the XK8. So it's, you know, it's got an interesting history. Um, I mean, that engine is still in production. You yeah, know, the five-litre supercharged Watset, you know, that is still, I mean, it's, but there probably isn't a single interchangeable part, I don't know, but that is directly where it's come from. And that car made its debut in, I don't know, 96, 97, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, very fond memories of that car. Okay, let's have one more of yours. One more of yours. Um, how sporting do they have to be? Mm, we can stretch that definition if you'd like to. Can you stretch it to a Rolls-Royce Silver Seraph? <laughs> uh, well, you're going to have to make the case for it, aren't you? Well, okay, so the Silver Seraph was... Um, but, it, I mean, you agree it is forgotten. Yeah, you know, we, I think that's fair. Yeah, so we remember, we remember shadows and we remember spirits. And then, obviously, it all went... Uh, a bit wrong and then there was the phantom but there was this car the seraph which was um the uh the rolls-royce version of the of the bentley arnage when that first came out um and they both initially had bmw engines but while the arnage had a 4.4 liter twin turbo v8 so it was the standard bmw 4.4 v8 but with cosworth turbocharged on it the Seraph had the BMW, the big BMW V12 engine in it. And I only mention it really. It wasn't a particularly good car. Actually, it was a bit rubbish. Actually, when we, I think when we did our best car in the world comparison back then, I think it probably came last. But I just find it amazing that, and this wasn't such a hugely long time ago. I think, you know, we are talking mid late 1990s, that there is a standard production Rolls Royce, a Rolls Royce, the finest car in the world that is completely forgotten. It just amazes me that a car like that could have just disappeared from from public consciousness. But I, could, I believe it has. Um, and, and that's really the only reason I mentioned it. If it wasn't, hadn't been a Rolls-Royce, I'd never have even thought of it. But it just struck me as really, really strange that that recent a car from that um, revered a manufacturer can just completely disappear. And it did. There's no profile anymore. No. It's a very good point. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, okay, so to wrap things up then. Oh, hang on. Wrap it up? I've barely okay. got started. <laughs> no, I'm going okay, to gonna, I'm gonna have to keep these. I'm gonna, I've got some crackers on here. Do you want to rattle through a couple of them? No, oh, I don't think I do. No, no I think we'll see. Well, okay. Um, Mazda RX-8? Yeah, yeah. I, I almost put it on my list. Is it just Brilliant because they're car. such a pain? Well, there are some people who reckon that they can sort them out, aren't there? Um, and that they're not. And I had some... I've had some really good times in those. Um, love the way they look. Love the way they handle. They're so cheap. I know there's probably a good reason for that. Um, there's some, there's, there is some quite obscure stuff on here. Um, 
I'll tell you what I saw. I was at Goodwood earlier in the week um, doing a charity track day for Mission Motorsport. And a Bentley Continental SC came into the paddock. Do you know what a Bentley Continental SC is? I'd have to look it up. Okay. So you know what a Continental R is, don't you? Yeah. You know what a Continental T is? Yeah. Well, it's that, but with a Targa roof. Oh. <laughs> so it's not an azure. So it's not a convertible. And it's not the short T. And it's not the long coupe R. It's basically, it's an R, but with the entire roof section lifts out. I think they only made about 70 of them. Um, and they were really cool. They were re- I might post a picture of it because I, t- I took a couple of snaps of it. Um, and I, I just, I, and I mean, I drove it when it was new and it clearly didn't do very well because they killed it pretty soon afterwards. Um, and I'm not sure I thought about it from that moment until this, but until this thing rumbled into the paddock of Goodwood. And I thought, now that is a forgotten sports car. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool thing. That's a good show. I, do you know what? I didn't even know it existed. So oh, well, there you, you, go. you can't get more forgotten than that, can you? <laughs> <clears throat> um, okay, right. well, unless you want to call out any more on your list. No, no, I'm because no, what we're going to do is we're going to, because I mean, I, I barely scratched the surface. I only, you know, I, I've only sort of sat down and wrote what came into my head immediately. So I reckon if you and I look through a few car magazines and actually had a proper think about it, we can get at least another podcast out of this. So let's do that. Okay, we'll revisit it. And if you've got any nominations, let us know and we'll talk about those. Definitely. Um, so why, just to round things up, why do some cars get forgotten? Is it actually just because they're not as good as the competition? Is that right at the heart of it? I don't think any of the cars we've mentioned would have been class leading at the time that they came out. And I think, and I think that is, I mean, it might be as relevant to us. Why are some cars remembered? Um, I, these, I don't think there's a simple answer. I think these are always these cars always become victims of circumstance. And the thing is, we don't remember what those circumstances were because we can look back and we can think, well, that's the car, but we can't remember exactly what it was up against. We can't remember exactly what the market was doing at the time. You know, trends come and go, don't they? Um, you know, hot hatchbacks are in one day, and you know, and, and you can't sell them for love nor money the next. You know, coupes come in, coupes go out, and and, and you just don't remember the context of everything. So you and I sit here and we think, why are these cars being forgotten? Um, but I think that if we could spool back and go back to when they were new and somebody said to you do you think this car will be remembered or forgotten you probably have a greater understanding and appreciation of why it might be forgotten i don't know i don't know but you know victims of circumstance or just not being terribly good and then we look back at them with the with the old rose tints on and have a slightly slightly sort of misty-eyed view of them and the truth and the truth is like the lotus europa it just wasn't that wasn't great a car that good. and probably deserved to be forgotten okay good well there are a few more on my list that i haven't been able to mention so maybe we do need to do this again um Definitely. but yeah so get your it. nominations into us um and we'll we'll discuss the best ones uh okay let's leave that one there thank you all for listening um make sure you go and download the app search the intercool on the app store download the app start your free trial and see what you think. Um, And we'll be back to talk to you again next week. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 